Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I'm Sam. He's Andy back with us this week. Andy, did you miss me in the eight days that you didn't get to talk to me uh, verbally anyways? Absolutely. Um, I think I've slept a total of like two and a half hours in the eight days. So Is that because you missed me or because of your newborn baby or a little bit? It was a combination of a newborn infant and my longing for you, my co-host on this podcast. I had a real like welcome to the NFL moment of fatherhood last weekend. My wife went out of town for a wedding. And so it was just going to be me alone with the little dude for 72 hours. Oh, man. Getting thrown into the deep end. He proceeded to, like, get a fever. I had to take him to urgent care. He didn't sleep the first night. So, like, by Saturday night, I had been awake for, like, 40 hours in a row. And, you know, like, when the CIA... When the CIA arrests you, the first thing they do is just keep you awake for, like, two days. You know what I mean? Like, that's the easiest way to break a human is just deprive them of sleep. So my dad came over Saturday night to help, and AJ was just – he had a fever, so he's just in this mode that kids get into where you cannot do anything. They're just going to scream for, like, a couple hours until they get tired, basically, until they tire themselves out. Just continuous – Yeah, they have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, and I was just, like my dad came into our media room, and I'm on the floor. I have, I'm on my knees. I have tears coming down my cheeks. I have my son in my arms, and I'm just bouncing, going, please be okay. Please just stop crying. And my dad was like, hey, like, this happens to literally everyone. It's going to be okay. <laughs> like, and yeah, it turned out fine, but yeah. So this, going from that to, like, this, which is, like, kind of speaks to, like, the changing tides of your life, tra- trauma of war, like the, the things that you use to fill your soul when you when you go through a traumatic incident, like all these things. And it was also very relaxing to just like sit on the couch and read a book. So, yeah. You feel like you were part of the lost generation after I that, did. I, that I, hour I, I don't want to say I was – I don't want to say that I pretty much was at the psalm, but like kind of. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was sort of at the psalm. You know what I mean? Just for two weeks straight, artillery fire and shells <laughs> – breaking overhead as i giggle at the bottom of a trench like (laughs) just wild-eyed and bushy-tailed you develop some sort of crazy gallows humor that uh even exceeds the gallows humor you developed in your entry-level sales position in the technology (laughs) department uh which is hard to do that's 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 its own level of gallows humor that is the 21st century psalm (laughs) Dude, yeah. Uh, some people never made it out of it, and some people uh, ended up, right. you know, going to Bali and becoming influencers. You just, you Pour know, one out for our brothers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Different strokes for different folks. The sun also rises. This is the 1926 Ernest Hemingway classic. Is this his first novel? Which I just actually didn't realize that when I was when I was digging into this, uh, dude. So I guess he had his the... one major success right out the gate, and then he just kind of yeah. flamed out from there. I'm guessing. Is that right? Dude, I, it's 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 a very similar thing. Like him and Fitzgerald are just eternally attached at the hip as like the two great writers of their era, and they kind of both had this story where it's like they are. I feel like in all art mediums, it's very rare to be like acknowledged as a genius in your own time. Like many artists of yeah. like painters and movie makers and stuff, they're not really truly appreciated until they're dead. Yeah. These guys basically both like they they dropped their Gangnam style early. You know what I mean? And yeah. They were known, like, by reputation as geniuses and then just lived kind of horrible lives in the intervening years afterwards and just slowly degraded into alcoholic 
sludge piles and then died. That's kind of the story of both of these guys. Um, Let's talk about, can we talk about Hemingway for a second? Because his life yeah. was nuts. Um, it's crazy. What happened that I think, you know, it's crazy to me is that about like age 22 from there, his life just started going nuts. Um, yeah. He tried to get into the army for World War One and had a, was it a bad foot or bad hearing? It was something that seemed kind of like not that big of a deal considering that how many people we needed. I think it's in poor. I think it's poor eyesight. Yeah. Like he eyesight. literally was just like nearsighted or something. And so they were just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. fuck it. <laughs> we don't need it. Like you. wasn't, it shouldn't have been that big of a deal. Uh, but anyways, if he was, let's say, let's be honest though. If he was not American, that would not have been right. Like if he was French, oh, yeah, they, yeah. he would have been on the line. <laughs> like this was, this was the benefits of being late to the party for sure. Absolutely. If he was Russian, he would be on the front lines. He'd be dead, most likely. Yeah. Like. <laughs> um, so he ends up, because he can't join the army, he ends up joining the Red Cross, and they ship him over to Italy. And his first day on the job, a munitions factory full of women blows up, because women are working the lines in, in Italy. And he has to help basically excavate the piles of rubble and debris looking for survivors. And he's finding like limbs and like dead people. So and like that, that, that is his first like day boots on the ground experience. Um, which, Oh my gosh, what a crazy introduction to like serving your country. That would be, I couldn't even imagine. Oh, unreal. One other thing I wanted to note about him. He's from, he was born and raised in Oak park, Illinois. Um, I find it so fascinating when, a bunch of really extraordinary people are from a very small geographic area. Um, I remember reading this uh, book by Malcolm Gladwell a few years ago, and listeners, please don't judge me for, like, you know, being super stereotypical and reading a Malcolm Gladwell book. I know it's, like, kind of, uh, like, a, not a, the a most scientific. for Google that yeah, lives in know, Austin that reads Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. But he he <laughs> had this very interesting, like, study around, like, there's this one like three square mile area in Brazil that has produced like, you know, more all star soccer players than entire continents have, right? Like things like was that. This outliers, by the way, the book. Outliers? Yeah, it was, it's, it's outliers. Um, it's a crazy book. Oak Park produces Ernest Hemingway and Frank Lloyd Wright within a couple years of each other, within a couple blocks of each other. Like wow. two of the greatest creative minds in American history. Like one, one you know, probably like. When people talk about, I want to write the great American novel, or like, I want to be the next great American author, like, they're thinking of someone in the mode of Ernest Hemingway. And Frank Lloyd Wright has designed homes that, to this day, you can walk into and are like, yeah, this is like a normal modern home. (laughs) Like, he was so ahead of his time that he was building homes in, like, the 30s that look new now. Um, It's incredible. So, I just wanted to make a note of that. I just think that's so fascinating that, like, these two dudes who, like, would go on to be, you know, names that people who would never even you know, obviously would never come in contact with them would know we're born so close together, like geographically speaking. Yeah, Um, that is crazy. Yeah. Hemingway is obviously someone who is, I I think from the beginning, Ernest Hemingway is is obviously shaped by his experiences, but I think through the lens of his, his lens that he brought to so many things. And I think once we get into this, this work, we'll see this especially is Hemingway viewed so many things in life that I think other people would view as like traumatic as, uh, things that were more pure and real than the life that people tended to live at home. Like to Ernest Hemingway, the idea of like, 
getting married and working a nine to five and having a white picket fence and a dog was like effectively hiding from real life and real experience and real action. Yeah. And so to him, you didn't really learn who, but like by resigning yourself to like intellectual and like, you know, masculine death in the suburbs and everyone pretending to be the same person, he was very drawn to experiences that he viewed as like bringing out who you really are. Like whether that's a coward or a hero, right? Like when you're in a ring with a bull, you learn very quickly who you are. And he loved things like that. And so I think we see like from the beginning of his life, the beginning of his adult experience, he's very much like immediately drawn, he's immediately thrown into and immediately drawn to what would otherwise be incredibly traumatic situations. Yeah, like this the situation I just talked about with the munitions factory that not only shaped him, but I bet he viewed that a lot differently than somebody else might have. For sure. The other experience that I wanted to talk about that happened to him that I think you can you can almost mark this instance as like what defined Ernest Hemingway as a writer, as a husband, as a father, everything kind of in between. When he he got injured in mm-hmm. in Italy, he had a um, a mortar blew up around him and he was in a hospital recovering for, I believe, six months. And during that time, he fell in love with a nurse, and the nurse fell in love with him, an Italian nurse. And they had plans to get married. And Hemingway went back to the United States. She was supposed to join him in two months. They were going to get married and start a family and things like that. And she wrote a letter to him and was like, hey, hate to tell you this, but I uh, I fell in love with another man, so I'm not going to. I'm engaged to another life. man. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, not even yeah. like a like oh hey I'm actually seeing this other guy but like no I'm I've already decided to like take my per- life permanently in a different direction than you you're just like oh that's got to be the craziest the like letter and, and the fact that you you go from planning your life around this person to by the end of a letter realizing that that's all not gonna happen just one letter that's that's not not, not read, the course of like a week or two of events just yeah. like. You're going about your day, you read this. It's like getting a huge bill in the mail, only 10 times it, worse, obviously. I, it, what, what struck me about it is the bizarre nature of correspondence at this time in history. So, like, uh, when you and I worked together, when you lived here in Austin and we worked together at the same uh, company, which will not be named. Um, just kidding. Fuck you, ass. I hope you, I hope you sink to the bottom of the fucking Marianas Trench, ass. Worst company in the world. Um, I was, at the time, uh, I had been dating a girl and then at the same time one of my like my probably my most serious girlfriend had been who had dated in college at tech she had gone to live abroad and she was teaching in uh madrid and we had started talking again and we had kind of rekindled our relationship and like i was like getting ready to like go over to spain and see her and all this stuff and then one day i got a phone call where she was just like i can't do this anymore i've been dating this guy while i'm over here and i just don't think it's a good idea for you to come and so I'm trying to, like, reframe that as one marriage, right? Like, I think I'm going to marry this person. And then on top of that, like, being told it via, like, written snail mail correspondence, and there's no way to, like, engage. Like, at least with her, I was able to, like, talk to her it live, you know, and, like, get some closure to the situation and then closure, hang up and yeah, move. Exactly. With this, he's got this letter. I can't imagine. What do you do? Do you just read that letter 500 times to yourself and just scream? Like, that's probably what he did. You know, you're just, like, pacing in a room, like, crying. Like, oh, that's right. a nightmare. That's horrifying. <laughs> like, So that situation is there's been biographers that have written and studied Hemingway's life and his writing, and they've said, you know, he, he ended up getting three divorces. He had four wives total, and he instigated all three divorces. And there are people that think, 
that kind of broke him as a man. His trust in people, especially in romantic relationships. It was just like he wanted to break off, break it off before he felt like he would get abandoned. And yeah, that kind of relationship that he had with love and people, it kind of bleeds into this story. Which agreed. Um, if you, I think if you gave a one sentence synopsis of the sun also rises, I heard a lot of people say. It's his bull riding classic, or not bull riding. That would be sick, though. Bull fighting. Bull fighting. Yeah, yeah, bull fighting classic. Um, Damn, if he wrote a bull riding classic, then I'd I'd be down to read that. Um, Maybe it's a sequel. But I don't really think that's what this is about. I think this is a love pentagon, if you want to call it that. This is a story about one very. I I don't know the the right way to call her what Brett is, what Brett Ashley is in this novel. She's pretty promiscuous she's she to me she is the woman that like is probably the most like bubbly perfect personality that all guys are just like immediately drawn to are just flocking after her and for sure that's more what this novel's about and yet like you said she is she is the modern woman in this lost generation which uh it's crazy The, the these characters are crazy if you wanted to dive into that especially brett ashley yeah, there's the, the the characters are fascinating. Each one of them tells you something about how Hemingway views a particular group of people. Um, some of them are really interesting. Some of them are very disappointing. Uh, obviously, er- Ernest Hemingway was a man of his time. And so, like, as a modern reader... <laughs> that, that, like, that's like the light way of putting it. Like, hey, oh, this yeah, guy was like, racist as fuck. <laughs> racist as fuck. Like, super homophobic. Like... And and I mean again, like I'm Hated not. Jews. This is this isn't going to be the podcast where I sit here and be like, newsflash, man from 1920 was not progressive by our modern standards. Right. But like, it is jarring to be like, there's just whole ass parts of this book where they're just like, all right, here's five characters. There's a sixth character, but he's separate from them because he's a Jew, and Jews cannot. They're one, they can't be trusted, and two, they're unattractive. Why are they unattractive? Because Jew. That's why. Like that's literally yeah. how the character's written. You're like. Or what is hey. the, what is the character's name that he goes on the fishing trip with Bill? Who he's like, yeah. man, I'm really fond of you, but I could never say that back home. Or they label me a f- in like, New York. Oh they, they, they'd say I was a f- if I said that. I was like, Jesus Christ, dude! Like, and and again, like there's there is uh, beyond just the very like easy dunk of like, oh my god, homophobia. That says a lot about, like, just the nature of masculinity, especially for this large group of men who, like, went to war and kind of became untethered from everything else that they had held so dear. So I guess that's a good place to start. Um, we'll, obviously, we'll go through kind of the actual, like, surface-level plot of this novel, although I would I would be honest with you, I don't think it's that important. Like, the actual events are not, like, what people love no, about this book, it, and it's not why it's it's great. It's not like And there's only, like, Lord five core events that really happen. You yeah, know? and it's like a 230 page novel, and it's like, yeah. and and I would say the first 40 pages is a lot of cafe talk. It's like an, it's yeah. like kind of like a Woody Allen movie where like you're just kind of setting characters up and nothing happens. It's not really until they go to I guess Bayonne and the fishing trip that really yep. stuff starts happening. Um, the beginning yeah, of this book point. is definitely a whole ass vibe that like people desperately want to recreate. Like people love the whole like uh, romantic, cynical American expat in Paris. Like my whole life is just like cafe talk and art, like lifestyle. Um, the, but so I would say that the beginning, the foundation of this book is that it obviously exists in the climate at the time, which is, uh, it takes place in and around, you know, what was termed the lost generation, which is at the time they only had one world war. So they didn't call it world war one. They called it the great war. And, Basically, the entire male population of 
every Western European nation all went out and like two third, you know, a third of them didn't come back. So not only is the population like significantly decreased, but those who return are never the same, not just from a trauma standpoint, but also like people leave for this war with tremendously like rigid ideas around patriotism, around duty. Mm -hmm. Um, World War one is a war that is largely fought, uh, at least in the beginning by volunteers. So like people are very gung ho to go fight this war because they don't understand yet what modern war is. Um, World War One is also one of two major conflicts that I can think of in our history, the history of our country, that is unfortunately a war fought with the technology of the like the present and the tactics of the past. So oh, the Civil yeah. War is another example of this. So like World War One, you see these crazy images of like dudes on horseback with lances. And what they're wearing gas masks because they have machine guns and airplanes and hand grenades and rocket launchers, but they have not yet developed tactics around those things. And so they're just doing like, like mass infantry charges across, you know, no man's land with machine gun nests with overlapping fields of fire. It's death on a scale that people didn't understand. And anytime you see somebody with like the horse or wearing the like bright red French coat, you know, going yeah. out to battle and you're like, oh, that's crazy that they did that back then. I wonder how effective that is. The answer is always not very effective. And it they learned that effective. with it. And, it. and it, you know, it took a few months and during that month they would lose, you know, a handful of million people. And uh, eventually people learned to get away from that, which is why we got trench warfare. Yeah. But you and, touched uh, on something that I thought was interesting about how the, the, the lost generation, how the war impacted them. Two things on that. Um, one small note, there's some really jarring images you can find of these men that when they start the war and when they come back yeah. and how gaunt and disheveled and kind of like droopy eyed they look just kind of showing you the faces of these war, really putting like an image in your mind of how these wars affected people and how we got the lost generation. But then the second thing is, and I think this plays a lot into Ernest Hemingway's writing is as a society, we were, you know, um, we really were generally speaking in the West, a much more conservative 1800 style society. We're like, for, sure. for basically everybody, religion was still like the cornerstone sure. of, of everything, of every small yeah. town, of every community. And then these people come back and they saw all the horrors of war and in their mind, unanswered yeah. prayers what, what kind of what kind of god and, would what kind of god would allow this to happen kind of thing right and so you have a million people plus coming going back home and having a completely different relationship with how they view god and that is part of why the roaring 20s happened and people just really started falling in love with things like booze and partying and how and i think our relationship with how we handled our free time totally changed and i think world war one is a huge part of that yeah, and I would I would say that it was all, there's also other factors, right? So like not only do people become generally untethered from kind of these cornerstone foundations of our what had been kind of the cornerstone foundational building blocks of society, right? Like organized religion, the community, their family, their duty to their their government. Um men that came home from the front line did not have an overwhelming amount of love for, you know, the president uh, or the prime minister of a given country anymore. They felt like they had been thrown into a grinder. They no longer saw, no longer found it 
easy or possible to see the beauty of God's creation around them that had been stripped from them by the violence and trauma. Um, and they had a hole in them. And then additionally, at this time, you have the Industrial Revolution going on. You have women's liberation movement. And so they come home to a different world than the one they left, which is also incredibly jarring. So men who had been used to a world where work was so stressful, so ma- like physically demanding that it was kind of like your entire life. Suddenly there are machines that do a lot of this work for the first time. This is the birth of the modern labor movement because for the first time, like you don't need to work 300 hours a week. Like the 40 hour work weeks established, the weekend is created. Like all these things that begin to like form what we know as our reality today were founded back right. then, but it's so jarring if you lived in the previous reality and then you kind of have to transition into this one and the tunnel between the two for you is the most horrific violent experience of your life and so for a lot of these guys that hole that they found in themselves that had been filled with relationships with people that were now dead their relationship with god who they maybe you know doubted the existence of or at least like thought he had a there was a lot i feel like in the readings i've done it's a lot less like i think when when i say like oh they they lost their connection to god it's less like atheism and more like there's a God. He just doesn't like us, you know, like for these horrors yeah. who visited on us, like God doesn't care about humanity kind of logic, which mm-hmm. you can definitely see someone wrapping their head around at that point. Um, and so they begin to fill that hole with pleasures of the flesh effectively, right? Like food, things that feel good and numb out what you're feeling now, music, dancing, carnal pleasures with women and men. Um, And so you have these people that are kind of set adrift. And this does lead to like, I don't want to say positives because like it's, uh, I'd say it's less of positive and more just a, just an output of it. But like we do get incredible art from this time period because of these things. Like this is where people's energies were poured into and trauma does create incredible art. That's been a, a factor in all of humanity. But so that is kind of the backdrop in which these characters exist. As we find, they find themselves in Paris, uh, cafe society. Paris, France in general has just been like almost destroyed by the Great War. Huge swaths of the country are effectively still battlefields that are just littered with dead. And right. people's view of life has just become like, hey, like let's just try to feel good today. Like let's we we don't know what life will be like a week from now. And so you have a huge population of young creatives who end up in Paris during this time. Um, and that has been highly romanticized. And this is kind of like a, I guess a more grounded view of that where it's like, it's not, not all great, I guess. Like these are, these are pretty yeah. hurt people. Um, yeah, they're so not having, the they're not the having a fun time. I mean, they're having, they're having swaths of their evenings are really fun, but these people are pretty miserable. And I think this yeah. book does a good job of showing that we're like, Agreed. every time they're not out and about gallivanting in the evening and it's the daytime and they're kind of like talking through their problems. You're just like, damn, these people are pretty miserable and half of them hate each other. And yeah, and the half that don't hate each other, like desperately love each other and aren't getting loved back. It's just a, it's a hodgepodge of pretty miserable sure. people. And we're, we're also introduced to another theme in this novel, which is uh, Hemingway's views on masculinity and the masculine experience. So Jake Barnes, which are really is kind weird. Of our, uh, agreed. Jake Barnes is our main protagonist. Um, he was, he's a veteran. Um, and he had, a, he was wounded during the war in such a way that he is like, no, he can no longer have sex. Um, which Hemingway's relationship with like sex with women is such an interesting thing to me. Like yeah. he views Jake who is through heroic acts 
unable to have sex almost the same way he views homosexuals. Like he's been devalued as a man in Hemingway's eyes seemingly because of his inability to like engage sexually with women. Um, and so Jake is trying to like, treat that as like a character flaw. Yeah, exactly. And so Jake is trying to navigate this like newfound, more sexually free, more sexually promiscuous environment filled with women who are more free than ever before to like, choose their own partners, make their own sexual decisions. They have more agency than they've ever had. And he is like, you know, a man at a buffet with no mouth, right? Like he can partake in none of this because he's, he's been, he's been wounded. So it's this fascinating dichotomy. Um, and it is, I guess the, the, uh, the yin to his yang is this 19 year old matador named Romero who is just like, ultimate symbol of like pure masculinity he participates in this like incredibly violent death-defying sport he's fucking all the time like that is to to Ernest Hemingway like that is the kind of man that like represents the perfect masculine identity and Jake who has like been robbed of his is the uh, the dark side of that moon which is really interesting to me because like I think in our modern society most of us I think would when asked would not devalue Jake's manhood for having been wounded in combat. Like that's not something that would make you less of a man to us, regardless of whether or not it precluded you from having sex. Like that wouldn't, that wouldn't play into it very much for me. I'd be like, damn dude, you got wounded in battle. That's pretty fucking manly. But (laughs) anyways, like, no dude, this fucking bullfighter, bro, (laughs) like this guy. Yeah. Well, and, and to be fair, uh, Romero still in today's society would be viewed as pretty sick. Um, For sure. Although it does give me a little bit of vibes of like, uh, because bullfighting has gone from, you know, the kind of like the F1 of its day. Like these people are heroes and they're super daring and stuff to like, now it's becoming uh, a lot less politically correct for obvious reasons to be a bullfighter and to kill bulls. (laughs) It is pretty fucked up. up. Uh, Have you ever like been to a bullfight or seen videos? It is, very I've seen disturbing. videos. I've they, never been. It is definitely it's hard kill to the watch. bulls very painfully. Yeah. It's extremely painful to watch, um, and it gives me vibes a little bit of of if Romero was like in a modern day uh, telling of this story. I am reminded of like Twenty One Jump Street when uh, oh, what is his character's name? When when uh, Channing Tatum goes back to high school and he's yeah. jocking on nerds and everybody's like, "Hey, man, that's not cool." That's like, not that's cool how at I all. Feel like. <laughs> Yeah, Romero. Like, I feel like their roles would be reversed in modern society. Yeah, people would probably. be like, Jake, you know, like, I know you can't, you know. Wounded you can't war vet, hey, dude. Like, great guy. Like. Wound- <laughs> yeah, great guy. Outstanding dude. He's kind of like the, he's the glue guy, as they say in the NBA. He's the glue guy yeah. for this friend group. Everybody, everybody wants to hang out. It's like Jake puts it together. Um, and then you've got Romero, who is, uh, kind of hits the, the, at- I would say the typical masculine roles, but is kind of engages in this pretty shitty sport it is fascinating i'm also fascinated by i've for a long time i can't remember when it was but somebody pointed out to me the use of the term expatriates is so interesting because it i guess it depends on the context but it does feel a little bit like in this book expatriate pretty much means like white people that live somewhere else uh like in if it was if the roles were reversed and it was like, like you know, you never hear about an expatriate from Mexico living in the United States. Like they're an immigrant, no matter their social status. Effectively, um, these yeah. people don't appear to be temporarily living in Europe. They appear to have like, you know, pulled up stake and now they live in Europe, and yet they're called expatriates. 
um, which is, I guess, a romanticized term. And that has definitely become like a very romantic term. It sounds way cooler than like immigrant yeah. or, you know, uh, foreign uh, worker or anything like that. So I, I was struck by yeah, that. I, I could be I could be confused on this. And maybe there's some formal terms that differentiate. I've always felt like immigrant is you are uprooting your life in particular for a work opportunity. Whereas I feel like an expatriate is more, you are there temporarily or you're there to retire or it's more leisure in its nature where I feel like immigrants are looking for an opportunity. Cause I have heard of people that have gone from say like the United States to like Amsterdam or Norway and they're referred to as Im- they've immigrated over there. So I don't know. So I could be wrong. Take, on that. take, take Wikipedia like. for what it's worth. Right. Like it's, you know, it's Wikipedia, yeah. but it's always uh, if right. you click on expatriate, it says expatriates are immigrants that maintain cultural ties in the language of their country of origin. So, yeah, like anyone that immigrates somewhere is an immigrant by by the technical definition. Um, it seems Got like it. expat takes on like a more romantic. I just I guess I'm, I, I, I maybe I'm coming off like I'm trying to make some like uh, political point about it. Political it was more just like, now. yeah, I'm more I'm more was drawn to the idea that like expat is such a romantic term like it seems so cool it's definitely to be more co- culturally accepted it seems really tight to be an expat like if you're like if you're in southeast asia and you're like i'm at this expat bar you're like oh that sounds fascinating it sounds like intri- intriguing as compared right. to like oh so you're rich yeah yeah exactly exactly as opposed to like yeah i was at this tourist bar <laughs> you know what i mean like i was at this bar where everyone's american <laughs> there was mcdonald's across the street like yeah so um, so that's kind of the, the first book really revolves around uh, them being in Paris and Jake and uh, Jake encountering Brett, who's this promiscuous woman of the new like swinging era, uh, them interacting and then her uh, trying to I guess she does woo Romero, which is viewed not very kindly by the Spanish because he's so young. And she's the aggressor, which is, I guess, not how they tend to operate, uh, at least at the time. I don't know if that's changed now, but it's it's frowned upon. And that causes Jake uh, to lose his good reputation amongst the Spaniards because he's like friends with Brett. And she's over here like trying to cradle Rob a little bit. Yeah. It's interesting talking about Brett. I don't know how to say what she is kindly because I think the way that it's it's described on this article calling her a promiscuous divorcee is like probably the most uh politically correct way to say it but she's kind of she is kind of sleazy like i mean you look at uh she you know gets jake to have a relationship with her and then when she finds out that jake is not able to have sex she's like you know what i love you but i just love sex too much so hard pass and then she gets with like his friend and then she also you find out later that she's been engaged to a guy the whole time and so they're like, whoa, hold the phone there. So there's just like a lot going on with, with Brett Ashley. We're yeah. Like, she, you're kind of made living... to think that she's like this super impressive person. But another person that I think, you know, if you if you kind of bring them to like a modern audience, not not that she probably wasn't viewed this way in, in back in the 1920s, but like, I just feel like if you did an audience poll that didn't, uh, for people today that didn't know anything about this novel and you talked about what, Brett Ashley does you'd be like oh this woman sucks I bet everybody hated her and it's like no that's not really the that's yeah. not really the takeaway you're supposed to have or at least that's not how the people in the in the in the book really viewed her and I feel like there's a dynamic of like it's one her behaviors are what they are uh but it it's also interesting to me that like a woman trying to navigate these this situation now would be interesting 
a woman trying to navigate these situations when that is like a recent advent is so weird to think about. Like the fact that like yeah. 20 years before she could not have done any of this and now she suddenly can. And so she's like, you know, she can't go to her mom for advice or anything. You know what I mean? Like these are, this is a new role in society that women are occupying and she's kind of pressing on the walls, so to speak, like pushing the envelope, figuring out where the boundaries of her agency are and making what I, you know, I think we could agree are poor decisions in many situations that, you know, probably will not pay off what's best for her. But it is interesting because I think what we see in Brett is also, you can read into how, uh, how Hemingway viewed many of the women that he interacted with. Um, yeah. And, whether that says more about women at the time or the women specifically in the environments that Hemingway put himself in. Cause it's not like Hemingway was going to church, right? Like he wasn't meeting these girls right. at the fucking bake sale. He was like in 1940s and fifties Cuba, like <laughs> doing, doing cool shit in sun hats. So like, right. Yeah. Different crowd for sure. Brett might've very well been a stand in for how Hemingway viewed most women or maybe maybe attractive women it's you know it's we talked about ready player one and how kind of shitty that got um and how the author kind of plugged in women and how strange that was i didn't really get this like as i was reading this novel i wasn't gleaning that from it but i could see where he was getting inspiration from some of his experiences and making brett for lack of a better word i felt like he had at least had a relationship with a woman i felt like unlike ready player one i i believed that hemingway had at least met a woman a real live breathing oh, woman before yeah, like yeah. this is this woman might be an amalgamation of a bunch of people and it might even be an amalgamation that then has the the bad parts and tendencies highlighted a little bit to create the right character that he wanted but it certainly felt like a breathing human whereas like all the women in ready player one are uh, bizarre you know anime blow-up dolls which is very right. weird Agreed. It's just, Agreed. We can't I, we can't go back, Sam. We can't just let this turn into like the sun also already <laughs> ready player one fucking sucks, dude. This is this is episode is gonna be part one of The Sun Also Rises and part two of Ready Player One combined into one episode. Oh so um, man it, yeah, I Brett is crazy. Her relationship with all the guys are crazy. Um and again, we said this earlier, I don't think you can pull off this character web um I don't think you could have pulled off this character web 20 years earlier if you had written this novel. Like, I think it needed the Lost Generation readership, viewership to understand what this was, to at least be able to attach to it um, what they're seeing around their society as opposed to, you know, if they had done that, if if he had written this 20 years earlier, I don't think people would have read it and been like, what are these people doing? They're, like, going out all the time, sleeping around. This isn't, like... Not that, not that those things didn't exist, but the lost generation and the huge swaths of people in Western Europe doing this and having, like you said, the leisure time to just drop everything and go on fishing trips and, and things like that or going to go see the running of the bulls and just like kind of expatriating, expatriatizing all around Europe. The fact that people like the general population could empathize with just like being kind of listless and wandering, you know, like because of the chaos that the war had left behind and like all that untethering we had talked about a group of characters written like this, you know, like you said, 20 years beforehand, people would have been like, where's their families? Where's their family farm? They need to work on. Why aren't they working? You know, blah, blah, blah. But after the war, there was, you know, millions of people who were like, yeah, man, I get it. Like you just want to go somewhere else that isn't here. You know, that's new and exciting enough to distract you from 
what's eating you inside a little bit. I totally get that. Yeah. So yeah, that was fascinating. The book two is also, um, once we get into book two, that's the, the fishing trip. That's also where we get like the brunt of the anti-Semitic stuff where yeah. they really go hard at Robert for, is for it being Robert, a Jew. Robert Kahn is the, isn't he the, the Jew? Yeah. I can't, I couldn't tell if that was I, Con or Cone, like, because it looks like Cohen without the E, effectively, um, which is a, a yeah. you know, that's like the Jewish name in all of literature. What struck me about that was two things. One, it is jarring for me as a modern person to see Jewishness made such a big deal of. Because, like, obviously there are like weirdo conspiracy theorists who think that like Jews run the world and stuff, but like in daily life, being Jewish is such a non-factor to like most of society. I feel like, you know what I mean? Like that's like to me in my interactions, like Jewish people are just lumped in with other white people. You know what I mean? Just like another kind of white person effectively. Yeah. It is very clear here that like Jews are like very much a separate race to the people that are writing this book, that are reading this book, that are in the characters in this book. And I also think it's very fascinating to read something from this time period because it is – I think it's it's a very weird factor for us as a in the United States especially that anti-Semitism pre-World War II was very common. Like Jewish people – the same factors that made Jewish people the took, take the brunt of persecution in Europe were at play here in the United States. They were largely intertwined in the financial system. When the stock market crashed happened, they became easy scapegoats. They were very insular mm-hmm. communities. They tended to be uh, highly educated, work jobs involving money, et cetera, et cetera. After World War II, almost all of society realized that, like, based on the Nazis, like, you do not want to be associated with the worst evil we've ever discovered in the modern world. And so right. anti-Semitism, like, really fell by the wayside, like, support for a Jewish state rose that led to the creation of Israel, etc. So reading something from this time before that had happened where anti-Semitism was just yet another like common belief that many people held, not all, but like a, a very common trope that you'd see throughout society is so weird. Cause I've only known the, the post Nazi world where like we associate Jewish hatred with the, with evil, right? They're like attached at the hip. Um, and so it's very difficult for me to separate anti-Semitism from like in my head, you know, comic book villainy uh, of Hitler. And, but in their time period, that was just like, you know, part of their racial makeup was just like, yeah, you know, Jews can't be trusted, you know, like again. And, and I said this earlier, like if this had been written 20 years earlier with the stand in for Robert Cohn, cause I think it didn't really matter as much to Hemingway if, if he was a Jew or not, it was more. He wanted to make an annoying character that kind of an antithesis of our main character, Jake Barnes. So he gave Robert Cohn a kind of thing that Jake could hate on. And I guess he chose being Jewish, which, you know, I'm not saying it's great, but I'm, what I am saying is I think if they had written this, if if Hemingway had written this 20 years earlier, it very well could have been, he chose him as like an Irish immigrant or an Irish expatriate. And then maybe if this was written 20 years later, he could have been a, a, like a Japanese person or something like that or something, whatever our society deemed as like the enemy of the time, if you will. The, uh, I thought, I think in, uh, I read Barry Gross, who's, has done a bunch of comparative work on depictions of Jewish characters in literature. Um, he wrote, uh, 
Hemingway never lets the reader forget that Cone is a Jew. He's not an unattractive character who happens to be a Jew, but a character who's unattractive because he's a Jew. Yeah. Um, and that is that is just and again, it's like I'm I am uh, I'm less uh, dunking on Hemingway personally, and more just like I'm fascinated by that being such a prominent, common belief in that. It's like I feel like if you right. today were writing a novel and someone was like vehemently anti-Semitic in the novel, that would be noticed. People would be like, "That's strange. What? Where's this guy from? Like, how did you come?" And to And not that? really treated as a character flaw. Like, it's one yeah. thing if it's like an, he, he's a, he's a that's antagonist. His yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's just a huge piece of shit. And it's like, okay, this guy needs to tone it down. Like, I can you use it as a device to notify the reader like this guy sucks. Whereas this here's, is more like, no, it's just a matter of fact. He's the main here, character. Here's another interesting Jews. thing. Uh, Cone is based on Harold Loeb, a fellow writer who rivaled Hemingway for the affections of the chick that Brett is based on. Wow. I didn't know life. that. Wow. So another writer who happened to be Jewish, who was like his romantic rival for the real life Brett. And so, you know, I'm sure Hemingway was like, and then Harold, I mean Robert, got his ass kicked a bunch of times. Yeah, and that, and that, yeah, and that goes back to the way that Hemingway portrays Robert versus Jake and what he says about masculinity because it's pretty apparent that Robert is kind of a child in this novel. When he doesn't get his way with yeah. the girl, he whines, and eventually Brett leaves him in San Sebastian to meet up with them and. Paplonia, and then Robert gets his ass kicked to the bar, like you said. I think this all happens yep. in book three, but uh, well, and, uh, it, again, Robert can't do the right thing at any point. Hem- Hemingway's biographer uh, Michael Reynolds wrote in nineteen that in nineteen twenty five, Loeb should have declined Hemingway's invitation to join them in Pamplona. Before the trip, he was Duff's lover and Hemingway's friend. During the fiasco of the fiesta, he lost Duff and Hemingway's friendship. Hemingway used Loeb as the basis of a character remembered chiefly as a whiny rich Jew. So, yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Wow. Fascinating. I knew that this book was about a trip that he did to Paplonia, but I I had read somewhere that he had gone with his wife. Now, maybe he returned back there, like, several times. and I So maybe I'm getting the details mixed up, but I didn't realize from the research that I had read that this book was, like it had real elements to it as far as like the character web and the events that happened. So that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. It is wild, dude, man. He got, he did just line him up and knock him down. Cause he got married in 1921, divorced in 27, remarried in 27, divorced in 40, remarried in 40, divorced in 45, married in 46 and then committed suicide. So he never, he was never not married. He was just like, like his divorces and marriages are always in the same year. Which is crazy. Yeah. Like that. He, I mean, I, I don't. I don't know this for sure, obviously, but that that is almost a, at minimum, a yellow flag that he's meeting these women. Oh, on the those side. are affairs for sure. Yeah. Like yeah. either that or he's taking wild gambles. You know what I mean? Like you're like marrying chicks you've known for like three months, <laughs> like that you met on the rebound yeah. in the wake of a divorce. That and these aren't like I married a girl. It was the wrong girl. We you know we broke it off after a year. He was married to some of these women for like a decade and a half. And then would break right. up with them to marry another chick. It's crazy. What a life, yeah. dude. A lot of impulsive decisions in his life. and For uh, sure. Yeah. For that sure. That certainly seems like it was one of them. So I derailed us a little we, bit. So I guess we'll get into, uh, into book three here. Um, so book three is kind of the aftermath. Book two is really the climax. They have this fiesta in Pamplona. It's where all the kind of conflict occurs. 
Um, book three, they've kind of sobered. They leave Pamplona. Um, Bill goes back to Paris. Mike stays in Bayonne. Uh, and Jake goes to San Sebastian on the north coast of Spain. Um, Jake's about to go back to Paris where he started the novel, but he gets a telegram from Brett asking for help. She's gone to Madrid with Romero, and he finds her in this cheap motel, broke, without Romero, and she announces that she's decided to go back to Mike, and the novel novel ends with Jake and Brett in a taxi speaking of things that might have been. So, like, that whole thing blew up in her face. (laughs) That dude, turns out this 19-year-old was not, like, the best partner yeah. for a serious relationship and he dumped her in some cheap hotel with no money and dipped. So exactly. Shout out to Romero, I love the, man. The, the, Good for you, dude. The very end of the, yeah. Shout out to Romero. The very end of the novel, uh, which I should have pulled it up. Um, basically Brett says something to the effect of, isn't it great? To think about what a wonderful life we could have had or something. And then, uh, it takes a small paragraph to kind of point out that a cop in the road, is directing traffic, puts out his hand, and the car comes to an immediate stop. And Brett kind of is forced to lean on Jake for a second. And then Jake kind of just, like, shoves her back just barely and is like, he says something to the effect of, like, isn't it fun to think so? Or, like, he kind of disagrees with her. Do you have yeah. it pulled up? I don't. What does I'm he looking say? for it right now. I'm, I, I don't have it. I'm looking for it, though. Yeah, I, I, if you could pull it up real quick. Uh, yeah, sorry. But I love that line, first of all, uh, because I think it's first of all, it's it's Jake finally realizing how kind of pathetic Brett is and how impulsive she is and how she is just like a gallivant. Yeah, is isn't it pretty to think so? Yeah, he's basically just like yeah, bet. And the second thing I I like about that is uh, city boy, city <laughs> yeah. boy, just Dude. ultimate city boy behavior of. of just like you could tell that Brett would be down to like start dating him possibly or whatever, and then he's just like, "Nah, girl, like you're you're dusty." Hemingway had such a fire crew in Paris too, so he lives in Paris with Gertrude Stein, James Joyce, Ezra Pound, and Pablo Picasso. Ezra Miller. <laughs> Ezra Miller. He would have fit in, dude. He would have been a good time. Ezra, in, in 1920s. Ezra Miller would have definitely beaten the shit out of Robert Cohn in a bar. And you Papua just like Anya. you just like open this book and it's just like written by Ezra Miller and it's like uh, to the Ku Klux Klan chapter of Raleigh, North Carolina. You're like what? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. And then they yeah the NAACP was like, hey, they, they actually don't have a presence there. <laughs> like, could you but, stop? We appreciate your support, <laughs> anyways. Oh my gosh! So, but yeah, yeah, what a what a fascinating what a fascinating like fertile ground, intellectual and creative ground in which to write this novel, and then the novel that comes from it's so fascinating because you're almost getting like a you're almost getting a report on what life was like, but like filtered through the Hemingway like life experience lens, which is obviously like one of the quintessential American perspectives. I would say like Hemingway. Mark Twain, like these are some of our, you know, our American voices that people turn to when they want like, you know, the tone of America. Um, And so getting that expat perspective on like life in Europe in the intervening years between the war, especially what we know now, you know, people at the time viewed that as the war to end all wars, like the war that was so terrible that we'd never fight a war again. And now in modern history classes, the years between World War One and World War Two are almost taught not as wars, years of peace, but as just like 
ceasefire between you know one large war with a break in the middle right. rather than two separate right. conflicts um so it's so fascinating to like read this account of like just the almost the the casualties of the first half of of that conflict and them wondering about the what was left of Europe um i think they were probably i think hemingway said it like he loved Spain because it was the only country that wasn't just shot to hell, like by the whole thing. It was like one of the few Western European countries that wasn't just bombed out and depleted in the wake of the war. Right. So it was a nice place Franco to spend wasn't, time. Wasn't bombing places yet, but yeah, not yeah. yet. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting that you called it a report on daily life, and I think that is a great way to describe the novel because this novel is—I I compared book one a little bit in the cafe dialogue to a a Woody Allen movie, and I do think that that's honestly pretty apt i think that this novel has it has a very linear plot line like you don't really have a character that has like this massive thing they have to learn and then they overcome this hurdle and there's like a new equilibrium there is a new equilibrium a little bit at the end of the novel but it's a pretty like i said a a linear plot line and it feels like you just got a snapshot of one person's of like a small portion of their adulthood right and yeah there was probably a lot of stuff that happened after this or before this that was very similar than this weekend trip to Spain or this week or two long trip to Spain. And we just got a glimpse of it. And it's kind of a capsule, uh, a, a time capsule of what one friend group might have dealt with during this time. Um, and for that reason, it kind of leaves you with parts of this book that feel a little bit boring because there isn't that and there isn't that goal that they're chasing like there's not a time delivery that has to be met there's not a there's not really that much of an antagonistic force it's just kind of like they're just kind of meandering around and getting drunk and having dumb conversations and for whatever reason Hemingway writes a lot of those dumb conversations in here there are they will be it'll be two characters that you hardly know talking like gossiping about a character that isn't even part of the novel and you're just kind of like okay I'm just if you, there's a lot of parts of this novel where you feel like you are at a mixer where you don't know anybody and you're kind of just like yeah. standing off to the side listening to people and you're just like yeah uh, cool anyways yeah, for sure yeah Woody Allen movie feels very apt in that regard where there are swaths where like the dialogue is interesting but the topic is not interesting at all whatsoever it's a uh... It's, like I said at the beginning, I think this is a movie or a movie, a book that is the the events. It's almost like the the words are there to just facilitate the larger themes and the vibe rather than like a series of actual events. Because like again, like you're just not if you're going into this being like I can't wait to see what happens next. That's not you're not going to be satisfied. There's no like. There's yeah. no inciting action. There's no fun events that you like really cling to. It's more like individual lines of prose that you end up being like, wow, that's really uh, that's a, that's an interesting thought. Like I'd never thought and of like yeah. this that way. Um, and that's kind of how all and of his writing is. Like my favorite book by him is A Movable Feast, um, and it's very similar. Like it's not about you know if you're like oh what's the coolest part of A Movable Feast? Well, it's they're at dinner one night. You know what I mean? It's just like a, a retelling of a dinner party. And yeah, there's some witty banter and like, but it's more about like his way of describing things, his prose, those kind of things, the themes at play. Um, and in some ways, I, as someone who has tried to write things before, I find myself incredibly jealous of people that can write that way. Like they don't need uh, any kind of real like events or action or structure. Like that's not what it's about. They just are capable of communicating feeling and emotion in such a way with like such beautiful words like i read some lines of hemingway's writing and i'm just like fuck i don't know why i even try to write 
Like that's yeah. <laughs> I'll never be able to do that. That's crazy. I get I get that, but at the same time I also get entire paragraphs and lines when I'm like I I legitimately am like did he did he like do a second draft on this cuz <laughs> I totally I do agree that there are some phenomenal lines, but there are some there are some lines that are in some parts of this novel that are just laughably weird. There's that's all um, I am with the old man in the sea, which is like a, you know yeah. a lauded classic that's read in like eighth grade classrooms across the globe, and it's tough for me to even get through. Like I find yeah. it. There, there's two insane. line, two parts of the book in particular that I found really interesting, and I kind of circled this. Like, what the hell? This is like an indicator that things were a little bit strange. Um, one, as I said, I guess there's three things. One. As I said, the dialogue, they have banter about things that aren't important to any sort of story, nor is it stuff that you have any background information on. There's a there's an adage about dialogue. It's like you want dialogue to be realistic but not real because real yeah. conversation can be kind of boring where if you don't have the context sure. or people are repeating themselves or they're stuttering and you kind of want to be able to make an interesting conversation and information conveyed that has some of those stop gaps and things that make it realistic, but... You want every scene or every conversation to end with status quo, end with an information reveal that changes, that, like, makes one person have, like, a mood change, right? Like, to set a new scene or set a new desire. But you don't really have that in this book. It's, again, it's very similar to just conversation that you or I might have on the phone where we just go back and forth on something and there's no there's no to-do after it. We just... We're just done ranting. Um, we we were second, fortunate that Hemingway happened to like hang around with like really interesting people, or it would have been unreadable. You know what I mean? Like he happened sure. to have like incredibly fascinating humans around him. But yeah, you're definitely right. The two other things I wanted to bring up, as far as things I circled, was there were lines where he wouldn't do any description at all, and where you needed it, and there was other parts where he would do too much description and be very bland description. And I'm not. I don't read books for the prose and the purple prose and flowery description. I don't really need that. Um, his writing is famously sparse, but there was a few parts of this novel where it was sparse to a degree where I was like, dude, isn't your, isn't this your job to describe what you're supposed to be talking about? Like, so, uh, I'll give you kind of example. Um, Part of the reason I wanted to read this novel is I've got a trip coming up later this year. We're actually going to a lot of the places in the novel, like Bayonne, like San Sebastian. And so I was really interested to see there's some novels that can really transport you to those to those places. And so you can get an, an understanding of the history and the culture and stuff. And there's entire scenes of this book where they're, well, they will be in a town and he won't spend any time describing anything. So yeah, they could be in New York City for all you know. Like there's no... It doesn't set you in the scene at all. Um, one particular line that I thought was funny, I think they're in Bayonne, and he has a paragraph that says, and I don't, again, I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but Robert, he's like, Robert saw a church and pointed it out and thought it was quite nice. He described it as a something or another. I can't quite remember what he said exactly, but I found it quite humorous. But to me, it just looked like any one of those old European churches you might find, you know, particularly in Spain, you know, you know those kind, and I'm like, what? Well, you're not describing anything to me. You're, See, you're I saying kinda, I, I kind of like that. I, I find I find that like almost comfortable to slip into. Like you 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 understand who this person is that's talking because like that's something a real human would say. It is, but there's also part of me that's like, 
you described a church as looking like something or another. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I want to know what you're seeing. Like, yeah, there's I, a small I, I part of me it. that wants that. But I almost feel like that again plays into like these. That's the kind of human beings these are. That like those kind of things have lost their meaning. That like the the ability to like you know I always think about my grandparents. Like my grandparents go to Europe on vacation and they like look at like flower gardens and stuff. You know what I mean? Like real old people shit. Yeah. And yeah. these the people in this novel have lost the ability to like even see beauty and things like that because of the experiences they've had and what they've lost and the people that have never come home and they've been completely disconnected from like everything that they understood to be like the foundation of their world. And so when they walk down the street, when me and you might look up and be like, wow, look at the intricacies of this architecture and all this stuff, like to them, like things have like taken on this hue of gray. You know what I mean? Like they've, they have a hole in their heart right now. And so like that, I I, I don't know. I feel like that plays into the larger themes around like the lost generation thing. I, I, yeah, I, I, I can totally empathize with a desire for, uh, you know, a better understanding of their surroundings and, and better description. But um, for this I, particular I work, I feel like that fits. I, there was one – so my, my third point was kind of on the flip side where he has these pages at a time where he's describing something that doesn't matter. And uh, one of these – I was so jarred by because it was his description of going, I think it was from San Sebastian to Peplonia or maybe it's Bayonne to San Sebastian. I can't quite remember. It's been like three days describing the journey or three pages describing the journey. And he uses the word green like 19 times. And then we went over these green hills and the turn and all you could see was, was green rolling hills. And then you took another turn, went down this street, we passed a ravine and then there was more green. And it's like, okay, well, and maybe that's to your point about he's, he is writing from the perspective of Jake. And so you're just supposed to kind of throw into the wind, any idea that there's going to be like really a uh, poetic description of these things, but it just left me kind of reading it and being like, huh, this is more bare than I realized it would be. Sure. Um, yeah. And I, and I just eventually had to pass. I had to just like look for the next dialogue and then be like, okay, am I going to miss anything? If I skip this next <laughs> two pages, it looks like not. So, so anyways, there was just, there was moments of the prose and the way he structured things where I was just um, not I as impressed I as I thought I would be. I wouldn't want to read this kind of stuff all the time. But, like, recently I've been on, like, a – I've recently got on, like, a, a little bit of a fantasy kick. So I've been, like – I was reading all the A Song of Ice and Fire books. And then I started oh, looking yeah. for, like, other fantasy novels to read. And fantasy novels are obviously, like, notorious – like Tolkien is obviously like the godfather of modern fantasy. And so everyone does a little bit of their Tolkien impression when they're writing a fantasy novel. And so there's always just like, you know, 48 pages on what the road to Tom Bombadil's house looks like. And it can get a little yeah. overwhelming. Um, so oh, I prefer this more than that. Don't get me wrong. While I, I, yeah. While I wouldn't like want to read this kind of prose all the time, like in th for this one particular outing and in this context i was like okay like this is interesting it's different like i i could appreciate it yeah and i did like the i i got a little bit of elmore leonard vibe on the dialogue and the the quickness there was a lot of there were scenes where there would be like three or four people talking in a circle and he would trust that you knew who was talking based on the kind of things they were saying and he would use minimal dialogue tags it wasn't like one of those novels where every single closed, you know, uh, closed tag would be like said Sam, said Andy. It would just be a back and forth. And yeah. by the nature of what they were saying, you were kind of expected to figure out who was saying what, which I actually appreciated. And I thought it was pulled off really well. Um, 
before we get into I wanted to do negative reviews and positive reviews because I found some hilarious ones earlier this week. Uh, Dude, a thousand, a thousand eighth graders who have been assigned to read this for homework that just fucking hated it. <laughs> Can I, while, while you're pulling that up, I wanted to give a quick spiel on some of the reviews I was seeing anyways. Um, it's interesting. I feel like there are novels where... You can, if somebody doesn't understand the deeper meaning or like the themes or whatever behind it, you know, you can, you can flex on them a little bit by being like, well, it, he was actually meaning blah, blah, blah. I feel like this novel is so in your face with the themes. Like it's, it's very understandable what he's trying to get across that I would read reviews where somebody would say, I didn't like it. I thought it was kind of boring. And then the response to that review would be this guy getting on there. I say guy oh, yeah. could be a girl or whoever. And they'd be like, huh, you didn't like it? Well, maybe you didn't understand that the bulls were actually an allegory for oh, yeah, the masculinity for sure. and the guys for chasing sure. Brett. And it's like, dude, we all know that. It, it, to me, it, you know what? I always like my music comparisons. What it reminded me of is when, you know, music theory, being able to understand what makes music great is, is a flex in the same way that understanding what makes writing great a flex. Um, but I feel like when you flex on the wrong stuff and you act like you know what you're talking about for stuff that doesn't really need to be explained, you kind of you kind of reveal that you you don't know what you're talking about. Like, I'll put it this way. If you are getting haughty about explaining to somebody why Beethoven actually slaps and like you can explain the music theory as to why Beethoven slaps, then kudos to you. Because that to me, that shows that you 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 truly do understand music theory. Now, if you are getting haughty about being able to explain, you know, what makes Little Wayne's prose slap tread, more, more tread like, lightly, I'm gonna tread. If you're like bragging to somebody that you understand the "I got that late text" line, and that's like your like you're gonna jock on somebody for not understanding that, then that to me shows more about your your ability to understand music than it does the person who maybe doesn't understand it. Like I don't like if you're flexing on people on the internet for not understanding the sun also rises, I'm like, yeah, we, we knew that was the theme. We're just saying that they don't necessarily think this book was that entertaining. Why, why are you getting on people's nerve? I don't know. So I don't know if that made any sense, but I just was no, very much yeah, uh, taken back by people that were trying to jock on others for not liking this book. It was like, this isn't the book to point out how deep it is. Because I don't think it's that deep. Like, it requires context with the Lost Generation and stuff, I think, to really enjoy it. But it's not its not that deep, bro. Like, you're not coming off as an incredibly learned individual by pointing out what the bulls mean. Like, chill. Yeah, I, it, I always go – It's always I always get torn on arguments like this because, like, I agree with you. But I also, like, if it's – if I have to choose a side between the people that are, like – dying on a hill for like great art with context and like high-minded ideals versus people that are like this shit's gay there's no explosions i'm i'll stand in line with the annoying people like <laughs> I, I don't i agree like, with you like the people that are like yes like there are people that are like incredibly pretentious i don't think they're damaging to society i think that people that are like yeah. this sucks dude have you ever read twilight it's lit like that's damaging to our our culture. So like, yeah, like many like many lesser of two you. evils. I agree with you. 
And I guess part of where I'm coming from that made me so irate is because a few of the reviews that I read would be, or it'd be like a Reddit post or something, and somebody would say, hey guys, I just finished reading The Sun Also Rises, and I didn't really like it. Um, can you guys help me understand why this is so famous? Because like, I got this and that, and I read it, and I thought that some of the writing was good, but I just did, I wasn't really that entertained. Did I miss something? So they're really trying. They're not. They're not saying I want to see more tits. They're they're actually trying to figure out why people are like this is incredible because they were kind of bored, and then people were twisting that into like you just don't understand the deeper meaning. And it's like there's there is a difference between the two of pointing out the deeper meaning when somebody clearly is like trying to twist something like like for example we did the Northman earlier this year when somebody like misunderstands what the Northman is supposed to be and what makes the filming of that so incredible, like with the single shots, they misinterpret that or they miss that. There's a difference between that and, you know, watching a movie just be like, there wasn't enough action, right? Like that's we're we're talking about slightly different things here. And I don't I don't know if I'm quite making sense. And there are people that they want to be smart for not liking this book. You know? Staggeringly tedious, like that one acquaintance who tells you about their holiday in minute detail without it ever becoming clear why they thought you'd give a fuck. This book should be expunged from our collective cultural memory and, if necessary, replaced with an old shoe. Maybe the worst book ever written. Like, yeah, okay, guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, using using big words and long sentences to convey a thought that is pretty silly i would say and and like that's the thing i i always come back to this it's like art is ultimately almost always subjective like right as as strongly as the emotions it elicits are like it is ultimately okay to like or dislike something like if someone's like dude i think face off is the best movie in the world i think they're wrong but they're allowed to like something when it becomes an issue is when you take issue with someone else not liking it or liking it, or when you make a statement about the objective quality of the thing. So it like it is totally fine to be like, I guess where I deviate is if someone's like, I found this book boring, it's not for me, I'm not, I'm not sure why people like it so much, zero issue. When people are like this and they're like, this book is awful and should be expunged from our culture and it's the worst book ever written. Then I'm like, okay guy, like <laughs> it's yeah. not like, cause that's not a, that's not trying to state an opinion. You know what I mean? That's trying to like craft opinion as fact. And I think people on both sides of this end up doing that, right? Like you are, yeah. it's not okay. You know, it's not okay for you to not like this or it's not okay for you to like it. You're wrong. And that sucks. Yeah, and, and I think that's what I was trying to say in, in better words and in, in fewer words. There is There are people who will say, hey, I don't like this, and then people's response is, well, the reason you don't like it is because you don't understand it. And that's yeah, that not sucks. always the case. For sure. Um, and we've been, I think in this podcast, we've been guilty of, of finding reviews and jockeying on people for not understanding it. So there is a fine line. Uh, I guess it, it really just depends on their exact opinion i guess and and what because if they say it sucks and here's why and then everything they list is irrelevant or wrong that's that's a different conversation than i just found it boring right you can't really argue if they found it boring or found it entertaining dude some of these are so frustrating to read 
please. I don't usually write reviews, but this book drove me up a wall. Irredeemably sexist, racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, nationalist, and chauvinist. And Hemingway repeats himself every other page. Once you've heard it's hot, you don't need to hear it every other page for the next 250 pages. For God's sakes, find another word. The New York Times called this prose lean and athletic. Uh, I call bull. I don't know what to tell you about the 1920s. Like, <laughs> the idea that you're going to encounter, yeah. like, people's attitudes. Like, regardless of what you think about Hemingway as a human and his opinions, certainly if you're going to write, like, if you wrote a character who was, like, by our modern definition, progressive and, like, anti racist and, you know, all these things that you take issue with, that person would be bizarre at the time. Like, yeah. It barely existed. Also, like, the whole, like, nationalism, like, the nation state was brand new. Like, <laughs> we had just invented this concept. Some people were into it. Like, oh, I don't know, dude. I hate this yeah. shit. I, 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 I see where she's coming from, definitely, on the, the use of different word choices now. I mean, I'm not saying that he needs to pull out a thesaurus and change the word hot to, you know, bothersome or humid or uncomfortable or whatever, you know. But I also... I had read earlier uh, preparing for this podcast that somebody had analyzed Hemingway's work and had had written had basically he had he had averaged out the the sentence lengths and the words he used and he was like he's writing at about a fourth grade level like he writes very simple yeah he's um, I mean he's known for understand. yeah it's it's it, like that was like one of the you know long standing notes about him is that he writes in almost childlike syntax it's like he avoids right. complex sentences he uses and instead of commas. Um, but again, like, I think for the kind of writing he does, it works. I think, like, for instance, like, the use of the word hot, if you're writing from a, you know, third-person omniscient perspective and you're trying to be flowery, of course you're going to use a different word. But if you are a person who's been through trench warfare and you are hot, you don't, you know, if you and I are out in the desert walking, you're not going to say 10 different words for hot. You're going to say it's hot 30 times over the course of the hour right. that we walk through that desert. And be like, Fuck, dude, I know I keep saying it, but it's so fucking hot out here. Like, heat yeah. is oppressive. It leads to, like, that is almost what it does to your brain is that it, like, do- that word hot dominates your very thought. And I think, you know, again, it's like, I obviously liked this book more than these people, and that's okay. I don't, I don't need to, like, I'm not going to go comment under their shit and be like, you need to like it, but... I don't know, man. It does feel like, you know, they wanted him to write a book he wasn't trying to write. Like, he didn't want to write, you know. Yeah, there's some a, truth a, to that. There's some truth like, to that. On the flip side, I'm also not going to give him brownie points. No, for, I'm not asking, I, I'm not asking I, like, for like brownie points. Like, I wouldn't points. look at the fact that he used the word hot. Absolutely not. And I don't know that he actually did this, right? But, like, if he did do that, kind of like the, the area of the book I was talking about where he uses the word green a lot, I'm not going to be like, whoa, this is really, like, realistic first-person you know, description because he keeps using the same word and maybe that is true, but that's not, again, it goes back to realistic versus real. Like I, there's a part of me that's like, man, make this a little bit smarter, but I, I certainly wouldn't give him brownie points for using the same word over and over again. So not, yeah, again, you're I, not asking for that, but no, no. And, and I do think, I think that there's something to be said for someone who can write very simply without the use of tremendous vocabulary Create a piece that requires work on the part of the reader to glean from it the underlying thematic detail that the author was trying to communicate. 
and that by itself engenders like generational dialogue around these. I mean, we're still talking about this book to this day for a reason. You know what I mean? Like, I think that he does deserve a little credit for the idea of like creating something that is that lasting that doesn't usually happen by accident. And I think that he was someone that I'm trying to think of the best way to, to term this, but it does, there is a skill in writing something that engenders such deep subtextual analysis without the use of like complex sentence structure, complex prose, all those things are stripped away. And yet we still have like people devoting their entire life to analyzing this man's writing and the incredibly complex and important themes that come from it to deliver that in such a simplified package is incredibly difficult. Like, I don't think I could ever write something like that. That's incredible. And I don't know if I even have the context in which to fully understand it. Like I'm impressed by it, but I didn't read all the, I know I wasn't alive at the time. I'm sure this was fucking crazy at the time. Like people were like, Holy shit. Like this is really different than what we've been reading. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's another music comp I had was like it, I think we, we read this in today's lens after reading, you know, hundreds of novels um, that have the benefit of all the works that came before it to understand how to write a compelling novel. And then you go back and read something from the 1920s and you're like, this is boring. You know what I mean? Um, because they just didn't have like there. He, he, he's being very innovative at the time with the way that he was writing the simplistic prose that he again, he he garnered from his experience as a as a journalist to me. As, a, as the music comp goes, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Hemingway's, I think, more entertaining than this per se, but it's like listening to an album from the Carter family and being like, this sucks. It's like, okay, but it was awesome at the time, regardless of what you think. It's, you might think it sucks, but it was awesome at the time and it was innovative and it was, and it mattered for the time and it, and it led to dude, other Sugar Hill things. Gang, dude. Like, go listen to, you know, a rip. A rap, a rip, rap, rip, you know, like 1980s rap. It sucks. It for sure sucks to our modern ear. But the f- no one had ever done it before. And we wouldn't have what we have now if we didn't have that. So it deserves yeah. its flowers, you know. I think we can we can give Hemingway some, some credit there for sure. Uh, any other hilarious bad reviews or good reviews? There, this one doesn't engender. I'll tell you this. I don't think that many true idiots endeavor to read this book. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't think... The lady that we read that uh, – the lady that was like, here's my upcoming reading list, and she was going to read Animal Farm. <laughs> like next, we were like, yeah. holy shit, that's going to be fascinating. Yeah. The, the, yeah, the same lady that said that Ready Player One had predicted food delivery, that one. I don't think she reads The Sun Also Rises. I just – and even if they try, there's just no way they're getting through that first like 20 pages. You know what I mean? Because it's just not yeah. – it's it's just there's nothing to grip you if you're not there to read literature. It is pure. That was literature. a barrier to market entry, dude. So many people like Webb was gonna do our was gonna join the pod. I'm sure he's gonna hear this and be like, "Damn you, Sam!" But he was gonna join. He didn't get a chance to read it, and part of it was because he was like, "Man, I picked it up a few times. It's hard. It was hard to get past the first thirty pages." And I don't blame him. In fact, if yeah. I wasn't reading this for the podcast, I might have dropped it too. So like, I had to well, power and, through. And that, it, so. I've thought about this many times. Like, we ask children in america to read like probably the best the highest brow literature many people read in their life is when they're like between the ages of like 14 and 17 and that kind of sucks because you're just never gonna yeah and you just don't even have 
even if you're like a really good student, you know, like, and you really focus and you read it and you take all the spark notes and you write an essay and shit, like you just don't even have the life experience by w- on which to bounce that off of. Like I right. loved the great Gatsby at 18. I loved it. It was my, f- it's, it has been my favorite work of fiction for 20 years. And yet I feel like I'm only, it took me until like at least 27 to really understand the great Gatsby and really love it for what it truly is and not, a whole bunch of other stuff I thought it was when I was a kid. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, Before I got into writing, I think my favorite novel of all time was uh, Ender's Game because Ender's Game was the only book that I read in high school as a required reading that wasn't really a literary book. It's more for entertainment purposes. Like it's And it has, you know, a plot twist, and it has action and things that things that are just not in other other novels. Ender's Game warmed me up for Harry Potter because Ender's Game was the first time I had to like really like turn over Death of the Author in my head because I was like I loved Ender's Game, I loved the sequel, and then Twitter was invented, and the author of Ender's Game <laughs> like turned out. What to did be he a do? What's huge his deal? asshole? He is just like. What what J.K. Rowling is to trans people, he is to gay people. Like his a big chunk of his identity, about twenty percent of his time is devoted to like gay people shouldn't exist, supporting gay conversion therapy. I would say like one of every five tweets he sends is about how gay people are, you know, some kind of abomination. And I could not square it in my head how someone that had written this book that seem to focus like so much on the idea that it's like, Hey, it's, it's really important in life to like, like glean a true understanding of someone who's different than you. You know what I mean? Like to really experience people from a different walk of life than you. And you'll come to understand that you're not so different and that they aren't an other, you know what I mean? Like that is such a key component of his writing. And then he's out here being like, but yeah, but not gays though. Fuck them. Put them in camps. And so I was just like, what? So like, but Bill, you better go back to Bayonne right now and go fishing. Right. Cause I ain't exactly. So anymore. that warmed me up for the eventual, uh, JK Rowling <laughs> disaster that we're now all experiencing with her just being like the worst kind of human in all facets of life. So yeah, Ender's Game's great though. Really great book. We should re- we should do that sometime. That'd be a fun episode. Yeah, would be down. What are your what, what do, would you rate um, The Sun Also Rises? It's an eight for me. Um, it's not my favorite Hemingway, but the pieces that would be sharpened into like all the parts of Hemingway that I think are the most beloved are are there in their proto protozoic stage. Um, I do think he got better at writing over time uh yeah but i i can see the beginnings of like what would form the nucleus of kind of the the hemingway both and i and i think ultimately like with hemingway you can't you almost can't separate the writing from the writer like it's not just the words on the page it's like the perspective that he brings to things the identity that is ernest hemingway being put being focused on the matters at hand, the events, the themes, etc., that brings value to his art. So, for that reason, like if this, like I said, like if if this had been written by some random no name person, I don't know what I would rate it. That would be very difficult for me. It'd probably be much worse. Um, but in the yeah. context of it, like being what it is, by who it is, and where I know it ends up going, it's hard for me to like delineate it. So I give it an eight. Um, a movable feast is a ten, but. Yeah, I had such a hard time 
squaring what this novel was as far as a rating because there were days when I picked it up and I read certain passages and I was like in a bad mood or I maybe was going one of the it was maybe one of the more boring passages in the novel and I was getting frustrated that there was no there wasn't anything the characters were chasing and all that would pile up and then I would be like this book sucks and I would you know read 10 pages and quit right and there's also parts of the novel like the ending where you're just like that was super satisfying slash city boy but other you know like I think as as far as an entertainment vessel for me again not part of the lost generation having read other novels that I think have have distilled what it means to be an entertaining written piece then have had again the the benefit of seeing writing for the lat for a hundred more years play out that Hemingway didn't have. I put it like, again, it's entertainment vessel. I put it as like a five. I just really was not that entertained by it. There was moments where I was very satisfied by, but the writing itself and some of the, I just think like lackluster moments, especially the beginning of the book, I was finding myself bored, which I hate. I hate reading and feeling bored, but I think it is important to point out that the writing style the innovation of the writing style, which actually is very important. Um, the setting of the novel and how important it was to the audience at the time makes it more like an eight or a nine. It's super like, this is an important book. This is a very important book. Um, it is a, I said a time capsule. It's a good time capsule into what people in that era, in that area were going through. Um, sure. And I think kind of like showing that to wider audiences and, being relatable in a way that other books weren't being at the time. So it was very, I give it a ton of points for being very innovative and somebody you know, the reviewer that said that this needs to be expunged from history. I think the opposite, I think it needs to be read more often. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was the most entertaining thing in the world for me. Right. I also think that like, I remember in high school, I was very fortunate to have one of the best writing teachers. I think I'll ever have, the head of the Phoenix program at Allen High School, our gifted and talented English program. Humble brag. Um, she was like she was like the super cool, like irreverent teacher who would cuss, and she was she would always tell us stuff like writing is like sex, writing is like bleeding through your fingers. Like she would read my she, on the first day I ever had her, she read my writing, and she was like, "If you were anyone else, I would give you an A for this, but I can tell just by reading this that you can do much better. So this is a D." And she made me, Damn. she made me like work it over the whole year to become a much better writer. And I did. Um, and I'm very thankful to her for that because I'm a much better written communicator than I was. Cause I'm sure you experienced this too. If you're like an above average writer in public school, like you can mostly just like blast and turn it in. And the teachers are like, Whoa, big word, a plus 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 plus. And you never really learn like the process to actually write well, because no one is pushing you to do so. Cause the teacher's worried about yeah. like the kid that won't write his name on the paper, you know? So, but one thing she told me, uh, was that there are certain books that are just sitting out there in the universe for certain people. Like, she, like there are people that like, everyone doesn't need to read Siddhartha. Like I've read Siddhartha. I really like it, but it didn't like change my life. But there are people who like encounter that book and it, changes the entire pathway their life takes and so i feel like this is one of those books where like you could be at a certain place in your life having experienced certain things you could read this book and it could change your perspective on things so i think it's important in that sense like and and but yeah. and art should be that way like every painting shouldn't be 
put in front of every single human being's eyes and then like reviewed by them. You know what I mean? Like it's there right. so that it means a shitload to like a certain number of people who encounter it in the right circumstance. Yeah, and I think that's why writing this was hard because I I realized yeah, sure. as I was writing it that this I'm not the target audience for this, right? So yeah. it's hard for me to say this objectively sucked. It just I found it boring. I would love to talk to some like modern war veterans who came back from like Afghanistan who like probably also feel a sense of you know disillusionment and trauma and you know left friends over there and things like that and then like have them read this and then tell me what they think. I think that'd be very fascinating. If you had gone after a girl who was, you know, promiscuous and got with your friend and then like, yeah, at the end of the day, did still didn't want to get with you. And then by the time she did want to get with you, it's too late. If you gave them that this novel, they'd be like, wow, that was pretty crazy. So, and, right. th- and that's the same with a lot of novels. If you find yourself relating with the character, if you like Jake Barnes to hate Jews, you might love this novel, you know, <laughs> you just never know. Um, what do we got planned next? We have uh did you were you able to find our uh, highly anticipated and talked about Akira episode in the in the vault? Were you able to locate that or are we gonna should we reshoot I, that? I, I, I need to uh I, I do think I can find it. I have not dug all the way through my drive. I do almost feel like we should re record because we've got so much. I, dude, I would actually be down. I'm down because we have new uh I think when we recorded it we had some bad audio equipment and so that one and city of god maybe we should just redo those i also have a suggestion i'm sending i'm putting it in the chat right now this is a book i'm currently reading um this is one of we're not doing mind conf andy for the hundredth time (laughs) it's the turner diaries god damn it no um so this is when i went looking for like more fantasy novels to read like i was like i don't there's so many bad fantasy novels out there like every neckbeard has written a fantasy oh, novel oh i've heard of i've heard of the gentleman bastard yeah so i i found this this is like every big like booktuber that i like when they did their like list of fantasy series like this is their number one above like a song of ice and fire above tolkien like Every, like this shit is beloved, and so I'm reading the first one right now, and I'm about a third of the way through the first one, and it is such a fun book. Like it is really, really fun. So it's a very different kind of fantasy. It's there's no like most fantasy is very much concerned with like kings and heroes and you know the affairs of state. This is the story of a street urchin sneak thief born in the gutter of a giant city, and him like working his way like you know, through the, uh. the criminal underworld of a fantasy environment. A very small, like, geographical area is covered in this book. So it's really fun. It's a great novel. So I'm down. something to think about. But I'm definitely down for City of God and Akira again, for sure. Maybe we'll do it. Uh, obviously, next month's going to be pretty tough. We'll have a few out of offices. We'll we'll record some episodes in advance for you for sure. all. But we'll do a, maybe we'll do our next novel book or our novel episode, maybe early October. Maybe this would be a good choice, but we'll, we'll figure something out. Yeah. Anyways, it's been great. Um, if you like what you heard, as always, please like and subscribe, tell your friends, and all that great stuff that gets us clicks, gets us more notoriety so we can continue to c- produce great content for you all. Feed the algorithm. As always, as always, yeah, absolutely. We're fighting inside algorithm every day, or day. This is Sam with Novel Discourse. I'm Andy. See you next time. Peace. Peace.